millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. When I hear the name Hearst, I instinctively think of William Randolph Hearst, the media magnate that owned the New York Journal. He also had a long political career fueled by opportunism. William Randolph Hearst became a key personality in American society, from the sensational journalism of the Spanish-American War in 1898 to the age of cinema. He died after World War II. I mean, the film Citizen Kane is even based on William Randolph's life. But as intriguing as he is, his father, George Hearst, was as interesting. He was a wildcat prospector turned politician, and in many ways, he was the inspiration for his son. The biographies of William Randolph Hearst still attest to this, and family stories about George have made it to press. But until now, there's been no modern scholarly biography of George Hearst. And we need one, because George Hearst is emblematic of the American West and the Gilded Age. I submit that there could have been a movie based on his life, because he has the tenacity of Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood, he crossed paths with the outlaws and sheriffs of Deadwood, and his political career had the feel of a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, although far less virtuous than Jimmy Stewart. But more, his love affair and marriage to Phoebe Apperson connects George with major social movements of the 20th century, because after his death, Phoebe used their great wealth to fund feminist and suffragist causes. I talked today with Matthew Bernstein about his new book, George Hearst, Silver King of the Gilded Age. Bernstein is professor of English at Los Angeles City College, and in his own words, has been living with George Hearst for more than a decade. The book has all the telltale signs of that. It's a thick, descriptive biography that brings readers in touch with the correspondence and controversies that surround this intriguing character. Welcome to the show, Matt. Uh, thank you, Michael. Good to be here. William Randolph Hearst is where I start my thinking about the Hearsts, but George Hearst, you know, what your book has shown me is that he looms really large, not only in the consciousness of his son, but also uh, in the consciousness of the United States at this time. And biography brings us pretty close with our subjects. I was wondering if you could just give me an overview. Just tell us who George Hearst is and why he's so important to the Gilded Age. Oh, certainly. Well, George Hearst didn't exactly have a rags to riches story because he grew up in Missouri territory just before it was granted statehood. And they were actually fairly affluent for the time, his family. They owned uh, three small farms. Uh, and he says that I was actually more of my mother's boy. You know, his father liked to go to uh, parades and he was really civic minded. And he was kind of a rough and tumble guy. And Hearst first got interested in mining when he went with his father to a, a, a French lead mine. And he saw that these Frenchmen could afford a lot nicer things than the Hearst family could with their farms. 
Hearst saw that like, okay, there's more money to be made through mining than farming. And he has a very patchy education. It's one of those like log cabin stuff that every like, every so often he spends a few weeks here and a few weeks there and goes and stays with an aunt in St. Louis and gets a little bit more of like reading, writing and arithmetic. Decides on his own that he's going to enroll in a mining school uh, outside of Franklin County where he lives and decides really that's going to be a, his passion. And he says at one point uh, in a 40 page memoir he writes at the end of his life that I have confined myself to mining since I was 21 years old. Everything else is incidental. And really that was, uh, that was his focus in life. Um, it's what got him what he wanted, uh, but it was his passion. And George Hurst, uh, he became the greatest miner in American history. Uh, he went to California during the gold rush, made and lost fortunes, uh, made his first killing in the Comstock load in Virginia City, which was then Nevada territory, lost fortunes, rebuilt his empire through a silver mine outside Salt Lake City, ultimately went to Deadwood, uh, got the greatest gold mines in the Black Hills, uh, became the greatest copper king through Anaconda Copper in Montana Territory, you know, and formed this empire, then turned into a United States senator, had this uh, illustrious career, and yet was always this uh, horny-handed guy who liked uh, greasy food and bacon and pork and beans, and was kind of an outsider in the US Capitol because no one exactly knew what to make of him. You know, everyone else was, you know, like Yale and Harvard educated. And here was George Hurst with this high pitched Southern accent and, you know, didn't read the same books that they did if, you know, he read them at all. And of course he also had this, uh, this genius son and this genius wife, uh, both of whom were so much more cultured than he was. So how does he navigate that life between being really rich? I mean, you know, uh, his riches are going to stretch on for generations, right, within his family, to then also wanting to have this sort of refined cultural lifestyle where he's respected in Washington or, or New York. How does that play out in his life? Well, he seemed to have an appetite for more and more wealth in a manner it seemed that he was a very competitive person. Now, a lot of people have looked at the movie, There Will Be Blood, and you know, have made like, oh, was this based on George Hurst? And no, it wasn't exactly based on George Hurst, because George Hurst wasn't exactly personally murdering people. Uh, but he did have a competitive spirit. Uh, so it might not have actually been that he wanted bigger and larger houses, it's just that he really wanted to win the game and then he had to put his money somewhere. Uh, he spent a lot of time in horse racing uh, in his later years, you know, and he bought the most expensive horse uh, that had been bought, King Thomas, for $40,000. No one had uh, offered more for a horse since Richard III, you know, my kingdom for a horse, you know, but it was the gamesmanship of it. He kind of like wanted to win the game of horse racing. 
I would say that uh, it was the competitive spirit that drove him more than the uh, the need for largesse. That's really interesting. I think uh, that certainly is the enduring profile that comes out of this from birth to death. The other thing that comes out of it is your biography, that is, is that he doesn't really take bankruptcy too seriously. Or it's, it's as if like, you know, when he loses a fortune in one of his disastrous mining plans, it's not like the end of the world. Whereas I know if I lost millions, I would, you know, I would be beside myself. I wouldn't know what to do. One of his enduring characters seems to be a resilience that not many people have. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, certainly. Um, now, speaking of Gilded Age, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Mark Twain's The Gilded Age. And, you know, one of the uh, themes in that book is you lose a fortune and then you make a fortune. And especially with mining in that time period, there was the ability to do so. Uh, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books uh, actually focused on sort of time periods that were sort of like sweet spots when that you can make fortunes. And the Gilded Age is one of those. Now, uh, yeah, Hearst could find himself $100,000 in debt and be like, all right, all I have to do is go find a new paying mine. And sometime it would take him years and there were disasters. Uh, at one point, one doesn't think of William Randolph Hearst living in a boarding house, but they lost their fortune in the uh, early 1870s. And little Willie and Phoebe had to like live with mom and dad and were bouncing uh, between a, a boarding house. And George was out there in the Wild West and in the mines, you know, like desperately seeking another fortune and ultimately finds one. You know, but uh, he always seemed to have an unshakable belief in his abilities. And even when he was down and out, other miners recognized that George Hurst had sort of like a, he had a natural nose for gold. Like uh, he was one of those people and everyone who was a miner at the time wanted this ability that he could look at a hillside, he could look at a mountain and he could tell you what was in it. He could tell you what it was, what it constituted. Uh, and he was considered the best in the business, and he ultimately proved it. Yeah, your book did a wonderful job of explaining how he found quartz veins and kind of gravitated towards them, which other miners weren't doing. And I think the other thing that really didn't surprise me about him, but really made me think that this was a, 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 a kind of person that I wouldn't mind being around is the harem of friends that he winds up you know, uh, having around him. So Mark Twain, you mentioned, he's one of them, that him and Twain strike up a relationship. I mean... Is Hearst magnetic and is he as much like a, a, a metal prospector as he is a social prospector? Ha. Uh, he had what people called a good vein of humor. And later in life, uh, you know, like he met Mark Twain in Virginia City about 1863. And they were both uh, boys from Missouri who made good. And later in life, Mark Twain uh, and he like, reunite in New York City and Hearst Mansion in Washington, D.C. And Twain, of course, loves to go over there because, you know, you're going to get like the best food. There's going to be a big party. And George will take you, if he likes you, down into the basement and smoke cigars and drink bourbon with you. And of course, he's going to do that with Twain. Twain at the time was actually more of uh, what you call a social prospector than George was because Twain at about... I'm going to say 1887, 
he had lost his fortune through that ridiculous typesetter machine that never quite functions. And he poured all of his money into there along with his own publishing business. Did really well initially, you know, was able to publish uh, uh, Sherman and Grant's memoirs, uh, you know, some of his own books, uh, but it ultimately failed. Whatever the case, he comes to Twain for a small loan and no one knows exactly how much uh, George gave him, but George does explain to a number of people, you know, with these loans that he would always give people that they didn't strike it lucky, that could have been me, so I should divide. Uh, now, he always manages, back to your question, to get terrific talent around him. You know, if it's a, a mining manager or if it's uh, cattle ranches, uh, he is a sociable guy that people gravitate to even without um, the fact that, you know, like, yeah, he can loan you money or buy you dinner uh, because he's actually very affable. And he was able to, uh, for a guy who sometimes didn't seem to be the brightest, who could oftentimes put his foot in his mouth, he was able to attract people like uh, Phoebe, his wife, you know, who was a, a smarty pants and a teacher and, you know, like a wonderful human being. His son, who was, you know, Say what you want about William Randolph Hearst. He was a linguistic genius. Uh, his son must have looked up to him like he was some sort of God. Here's a guy who just like came from almost nothing, you know, like out there in the outskirts of Missouri and, you know, was able to like rise so spectacularly high. He didn't, George Hearst didn't initially like win an election to become United States Senator. He was appointed by the governor because everyone seemed to agree he should be, despite him having almost no experience with politics. And uh, he ultimately learned to play the game and uh, people wanted him, at least from the democratic side, to succeed. There's just so much about his life that seems to reverberate with the times. And also the geography of the US at this time as well, and the sectionalism that's playing out. I mean, you mentioned at the outset that he was from Missouri. You also mentioned that he was a senator from California. Of course, he's gonna settle in Washington as, as a senator, really. I mean, he kind of represents all parts of the country. I mean, how did he feel about the big sectional debates and divides that were still going on in Reconstruction and Gilded Age America? Oh, there's a number of issues I can talk about uh, where he put his foot down. Um, he was uh, oddly an environmentalist. Uh, he did believe in uh, preserving uh, the California forests once he was uh, appointed senator. That was one of his jobs. He used hydraulic mining initially, which was bad for the environment, and then came out uh, against it later. Now, some of his politics were backwards, um, and that is my least favorite part of his character. He was for the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, passed in 1882, which he wasn't a part of, uh, which essentially made it so that it was difficult to immigrate to the country and that if you were a Chinese woman attempting to get here, you had to marry an American man. It became more draconian uh, and Hearst uh, lent his vote to this where I think it was about uh, 1886, maybe 1887, uh, 20 to 30,000 Chinese Americans abroad 
were stranded. Uh, they passed this law that they could not come back to the United States. So Hearst had some very backwards ideas uh, that his wife uh, was not in favor of at all, which must have made for some uh, difficult dinner conversations. Uh, at the same time, he could be forward thinking. He did go up against Leland Stanford in the Senate and say that your trains cannot privatize property uh, when they're running through property. Mind you, the property Hearst was talking about was lands with mineral rights, which of course he was interested in, uh, but he was able to uh, go against people. There was also a scheme, I'll say it, it was a scheme uh, created by uh, William Stewart, who was a Senator from Nevada and a few other people that wanted to divide Idaho territory, didn't want it to become a state. They wanted to divide it between Washington and Nevada so that Nevada would become much larger and Washington state would become much larger. And Hearst was one of the people who put his foot down on that, that said actually the argument that they were making that it couldn't sustain itself as a state because there wasn't any agricultural potential there. Hearst had gone through the West probably more than any other man going through various mining camps, uh, which people recognized. And so when he said on the, uh, the floor of the Capitol building that no, there is potential for agriculture, there are wonderful valleys in Idaho, uh, that shot down the scheme. And then of course, an enterprising prospector planted some potatoes in Idaho and the rest is history. And I mean, one of the things that Hearst seems to have is the same, well, the same thing that um, William Randolph Hearst said, which was this opportunistic politics rather than ideological. I mean, he doesn't strike me as a politician that uh, is, is all about big ideas, but rather one that is thinking about how it might benefit him and maybe in some cases his constituents. I mean, is that something that you think we can draw a parallel from George to little Willie on? Oh, certainly. Uh, Hearst politics were what was good for Hearst. Uh, now on a personal level, he could be extraordinarily generous and people recognized at them. Uh, but he, like his son, really wanted everything. There's a quote in there uh, by William Randolph Hearst where he suggests uh, to his father that they just buy up Mexico and run it for themselves. And that did seem to be the, uh, the Hearst way. You know, like uh, when he gets a hold of the uh, the Black Hills, you know, there's like 40 lawsuits or so against him. You know, everyone is trying to push him out. He's not, you know, like he's seen as an invader. And his strategy, once he cannot uh, win certain minds through lawsuits, is like, fine, I'll just I'll just buy it outright. I'll buy out the owners. It did seem that George Hearst's political ambitions were hobbled by the fact that he died at the age of 70. But had he keep, kept going, he was going to do everything he could to keep going. And his son had the same sort of mentality. You know, like uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst became a congressman in New York. Uh, he ran for mayor of New York. He ran for governor of New York. He ran for uh, the presidency. You know, he really attempted to take control of everything. And you know, at one point in time, William Randolph Hearst owned like one fifth 
of all of the uh, the like medieval art worlds. You know, he was this massive collector, and he couldn't fit it all in his uh, in Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. So he would have warehouses in New York just filled with his stuff because he wanted more. Now, obviously, he looked at how his father operated and felt, okay, this is the way to do things. And when George Hearst died, George Hearst was worth $20 million. Now, a year or two after he died, that had uh, blossomed to $40 million because the mines were still paying. William Randolph Hearst created what would now be considered a you know, multi-billion dollar industry through his newspapers, through his media, uh, through radio shows and uh, magazines and movies, you know, but he was a chip off the old block. Uh, the idea was to gobble up as much as you can and we are the hearse and this is what we have. Now, contrary to that, Phoebe Hearst was appalled at the way her son operated. Uh, and she was much more generous and humble. Now she was also, uh, she became the first uh, regent of UC Berkeley, which uh, they had, the Hearst had put a lot of money into, uh, into building, but she had, uh, she didn't have such ambitions as, you know, to uh, have such largesse. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's interesting to think about Hearst's lifestyle and his, his I suppose, his business um, his business, his desire to, you know, gather everything, as you said, and to consume and to build this empire. And then also his family life, because it seems so different. On one hand, he's not really spending a whole lot of time with his wife and his kids because he's constantly traveling around trying to prospect and, and his, his life seems consumed by that. And, and he also seemed to sue to keep, you know, his prospects alive. You know, it seems like he was lawyering up all the time. So how, if he's spending all this time suing and prospecting, how does the family life play out? Well, little Willie was a handful as a child. And I am absolutely certain that George felt, I'd rather go to a mining camp with all my cronies and have a lot of fun and, you know, maybe visit some saloons then spend a lot of time uh, changing diapers and uh, telling little Willie he can't be throwing bricks through windows or pretending the, the house is on fire so that the fireman will come and, you know, he can have his big April Fool's Day laugh. 
George didn't want to be part of that. So he was escaping some of the time as well, you know, and having fun on these business trips. As a father, he did, uh, he did spank his child on occasion. He was the one that really believed that like, Willie has to learn that life isn't just one great big laugh, you know, that he's got to have a little bit of discipline in him. But he, George was also a soft touch when his son was concerned, you know, and uh, William Randolph first wanted to uh, take over his father's newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner that George had bought to kind of help propel him in politics. He was looking to be governor at the time and bought the paper in 1880. Uh, George didn't want little Willie to take over the Examiner, thought it was what he called a quartz mine and would never pay, uh, but he really couldn't say no to his son, you know? And when it turned out that uh, the kid in one year had spent 140 some thousand dollars on the Examiner, which was extraordinary, especially for the money back then, and only $47,000 on himself did William Randolph Hearst splurge, uh, George wasn't terribly bothered by it, you know? he. Uh, he had other things on his mind and he kind of knew that he had enough money that they could stand it. You mentioned the story about April Fools. I wonder if you'd uh, share with the listeners that story from the book, because it seems, it seems to, to, to really show us what, what the dynamics were like in that family. I'll tell you a couple of uh, William Randolph Hearst anecdotes uh, from back in that time. Um, I'll get to the April Fools one. My favorite part of the William Randolph Hearst story as a youngster is he's in Harvard and he does a couple things that everyone is shocked by. A, he has a girlfriend and you're not supposed to have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, you are supposed to marry a nice young lady or discreetly visit prostitutes, but you can't actually have like a girl like around that, you know, Tessie Powers was her name and she was a Cambridge waitress, you know. And uh, this was shocking to people. And along with having Tessie, he also had a pet alligator uh, named Champagne Charlie that he uh, allowed to drink alcohol. So here's this, uh, this kid from California and he's walking around Harvard with his girl and his pet alligator. And uh, of course, this is shocking to everybody. He's also uh, throwing pies at chorus girls in you know, vaudeville shows. He's uh, vandalizing property. He's having a ball. He also takes over the Harvard Lampoon, which is their, uh, their small literary magazine. And he expands it from four pages to eight pages. He's, uh, he plays pretzel in a burlesque show that his friend Ernest Thayer writes. And Ernest Thayer will later write Casey at the Bat for Hearst's Examiner. Uh, you know, he's just a remarkable guy that you love from a distance, but as a teacher, you would never want this kid in your class. Uh, April Fool's uh, prank happens uh, years late, or years earlier rather, when uh, Hearst might be like around eight at the time, or William Randolph Hearst, and it's San Francisco, and George and Phoebe are remodeling their house. So they're actually staying with some friends in San Francisco. And Willie thinks it would be great fun if he sets fire to his own room that he's staying in. 
And then, you know, he's shouting fire and there's smoke pouring out and people can't get in. The door seems locked. Oh, my God. Young Willie is going to burn to death. So they call the uh, the fireman and, you know, the big hose gets sent in and drenches little Willie and puts out the fire. And he's having so much fun. And he explains to uh, mom like, oh, it was just a prank. And Phoebe isn't mad at him because she's so happy that her darling son is fine and you know George has to deal with it and he says uh were you very warm when the fire was going on son and Willie looks up at dad and says no papa I wasn't hot at all and George says well you're going to be warm now kid where it's going to do you the most good and he turns him around and he spanks him several times great story I mean, there are a ton of stories in this book that can be uh, retold and are, I think, so iconic for the era. I just want to ask you about two more. Um, I'll start off with the diamond hoax, because that seems a really interesting case where he doesn't lose his shirt, really. But, you know, there's this really massive fraud that's going on. And it seems like miners should know better. But can you tell us about the diamond hoax and, and how George Hurst is involved? Yeah, certainly. So uh, it's 1872, and this was a this was a massive hoax that took in uh, some of the uh, experts in their fields. What happened is a couple grifters uh, from the South came into San Francisco in 1872, and they went to the Bank of California and they roped in William C. Ralston who was the president of the Bank of California. They roped in George Lent, rather William Lent, who was a friend of George Hearst's and whose son, Eugene Lent, would become a, a good friend of William Randolph Hearst. And they convinced them that, okay, we've got this, uh, this bag of diamonds. We used to have two, but one of them, we were crossing a river and it dropped into it. And we know the location of this secret diamond mine. And everyone was like, oh, wow, they've got this diamond mine. And George Hurst hears about this. And George Hurst is uh, persona non grata with the Bank of California at the time. He owes them over $2,000 and they want their money back. And this is one of the sections in George Hurst's life where he's totally broke. He owes $100,000 to his millionaire capitalist buddies uh, Lloyd Tevis and James B. Hagen. And they have staked Hearst, but Hearst hasn't produced for them and they've lost a bunch of money and they're giving Hearst just like one last chance to make a fortune. So Hearst hears about this secret diamond mine that these two guys won't say exactly where they are because they want to get paid for the information. Anyways, uh, they go to New York City to Charles Tiffany, who, of course, you know, Tiffany Diamonds, and he is the leading expert in the field. And they say, okay, are these diamonds legitimate? And he looks at them, spends a couple days, and he says, oh, yeah, these are these diamonds, you know, it's like $100,000 easy. So everyone starts licking their chops. Meanwhile, Hearst is now on the set. He is, uh, he is getting maps of the West and he has moved to Salt Lake City because he figures like, okay, people are saying the diamond mine, mine might be in Arizona, it might be in Colorado territory. Uh, so he wants to stay kind of centrally located. He's paying prospectors to 
you know, go out and search for these diamond mines. It turns out it's, uh, I believe, what is now present day uh, Colorado. You know, they get to the the so-called diamond mine and it's a field. And it turns out that, uh, okay, yeah, there's like, after a bunch of searching, they find all these diamonds. Everyone is really happy. George Hurst has his guys come out a little later uh, to look at him. And Clarence King, who other than George Hurst was considered probably the best mine appraiser in the United States, he comes out and looks at them as well. And Clarence King can't believe what he sees. He says, or a friend of his comes up and says, my God, these, uh, this diamond mine is amazing. Not only does it produce diamonds, it pr provides cut diamonds. You know, and it turns out once people look at them, they're like, oh, yeah, these are sort of like old friends. You know, these are these are South African diamonds. The uh, the grifters, they end up with something like one hundred thousand dollars for their trouble and disappear from history. And the rest of them, they all end up with a bunch of mud on their faces and they end up horribly in debt from this. Hearst, however, he gets the inside information and there's a silver lining to his story. He makes a fortune uh, shorting the markets uh, in San Francisco because he knows that the diamonds are worthless. And what ends up a little better for him and then turns out a lot better is because he's located around Salt Lake City, he decides he's going to go prospecting while he's there. And he goes into what is now Park City, the ski resort. And some people have what they call the Ontario mine. And he looks at it. His friends don't think it's any good, but he spends like a week or so there. He buys it for $30,000 and it turns into the biggest silver mine in the United States. And ironically, had it not been for the great diamond hoax, uh, he might not have had the opportunity. The other big story that we have to talk about, because I think it's so iconic in this period, is anything that's going on around Deadwood in the Dakota Territory. And Hearst plays a part in the sort of development of Deadwood as a mining village. And I guess really as a, as a town or a village, however you want to call it. I mean, it's not a big place, but tell us a little bit about who he interacts with there and how he uh, becomes a, a sort of gold baron of the city. Well, let's see. Uh, it's 1874 when uh, Custer and the 7th Cavalry discover gold, though people knew it was there. They kind of verify that gold was there. And uh, okay, Hearst wants to get there, but then uh, George Armstrong Custer and portions of the 7th Cavalry wiped out the Battle of the Little Bighorn, uh, June 1876. And by the time the news gets to Washington, everybody is in Washington because it is the centennial. You know, it's like, you know, we it's 1876, that's the place to be. And then there's this, my God, this, you know, terrible, terrible catastrophe that happens in the Black Hills. So everyone knows that the army is going to come in. Hearst wants to get there. And for years, he's kind of trying to send his prospectors there and they won't go because they don't want to get uh, in the middle of this tussle. Hearst finally has gotten word that, okay, yeah, it's a good thing and he's gonna go there himself. Now, by the time he gets there, you know, it's still an illegal place to be. Uh, this is not Dakota territory. This is still like disputed land. 
but he gets into there and he's initially seen as an invader. You know, people have been there before him and they don't like the looks of this uh, rich Californian coming in and trying to buy up their gold mines, you know, when they know like, hey, this looks like the biggest gold strike we have ever seen. You know, this dwarfs, you know, the California gold rush. Now at the time, Hearst has got the capital that he can come in and he can transform a town. So a lot of people actually like the idea of Hearst because when Hearst rolls in, that means suddenly you're gonna have uh, trains, suddenly you're going to have uh, schools and merchants, you know, like you're gonna have all the trappings of civilization, you know, you're gonna have jobs and economy. But for the people that are on the ground, they don't like the looks of him. And when Hearst uh, wants something, he wants it very aggressively and it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, he's ultimately going to attract dozens of lawsuits and then the shootings happened. Now, in the show Deadwood, uh, which is a terrific show and breathed new life into uh, George Hearst, George Hearst is the villain of the show. Though he's not that bad in real life, uh, there was an incident that happens where, yeah, it does look like George Hearst is the villain. Uh, so what happens is Hearst has bought the Homestake mine, and that is the big gold mine. That is the best. And uh, it's still around today, not as a gold mine, but they fired neutrinos in it. It's, it's so big and it's so deep that they're doing wonderful stuff. The pride of the West mine and the Homestake mine overlap a little bit and there's going to be a bit of a tussle on who controls it. So one day uh, the Pride of the West Mine storm in to the office of Samuel McMasters who Hearst has running the Homestake Mine and they have a written decease order and McMasters isn't going to play nice. You know he's sneering at him he says you didn't, needn't bring a regiment because they, uh, they brought some uh, policemen with them to make sure they weren't going to be hurt. McMaster storms over to the mine and he's trying to, like, they've boarded up part of like a mine shaft and he's removing the boards and some of the pride of the West Mine, you know, pull pistols and, you know, they chase McMaster's off and then McMaster's comes back with uh, four or five of his own gunmen. And now we've got Hearst men versus Pride of the West men. And there's a standoff. And one of the, uh, the Hearst gunmen shoots a, uh, a young man named Alex Frankenberg in the neck. And Frankenberg uh, dies shortly afterwards. The Hearst men are arrested. And now there's a murder trial. Hearst is in San Francisco at the time. But he obviously knows he's got to come back to preside over this. It comes out and the judge of the murder trial, he is outraged that it appears Hearst has bribed members of the jury to swing things Hearst's way. So the, uh, the three guys, Hearst men that are on trial for murder are set free and the judge doesn't like it and he castigates the entire jury and he has all their names stricken from the official record no one likes Hearst at this point because they see that he's just a, a guy who can get away with murder, who thinks that uh, the laws that are written can be overwritten through his capital. And it's not like they're incorrect. 
you know, and it's a, it's one of those aspects where the George Hurst in the show and the George Hurst in real life do have a number of uh, similarities. It's a remarkable story. I totally understand why producers would want to dramatize uh, George Hurst and Deadwood. It makes for great television. Um, where do you think his legacy lands? I mean, we started this conversation talking about prospecting. It moved to friendships like with Mark Twain to horse, you know, he was buying horses and took up horse racing as a hobby to being in the Senate. What is George Hurst's legacy? Well, George Hurst wouldn't have liked it because of his competitive nature. Uh, though I don't think he would have absolutely hated it because he was a loving father. George Hurst's legacy ended up being William Randolph Hearst. He, uh, he gave birth to the dragon, right? He set the kid on the path, um, you know, and taught him like, this is the way to be, to accumulate wealth and power. And George Hurst himself was a little bit more of a simple guy and didn't know what to do with the power he had, you know, and really was more interested in acquiring political capital than spending it. But that wasn't the case with Little Willie. And that's why oftentimes you don't hear much about George Hearst. When you read the biographies uh, of the Hearst family, they're almost always on William Randolph Hearst. And they devote scant pages to George Hearst because the kid overwhelms the story. You know, the kid became, you know, William Randolph Hearst lived for 88 years. Uh, he was born shortly before that, the Battle of Gettysburg, and he lived uh, six years after the nuclear bombs were dropped on Japan. You know, like he was an integral part and lived through, a, you know, like the heart of the, uh, the American story. If it wasn't that his legacy was actually mildly eclipsed by his son, uh, it would be that he helped establish the American West as we see it. He somewhat built the American West. Now, if he hadn't done it, if there had been no George Hurst, yes, we eventually still would have had uh, trains going through Deadwood and Virginia City and all of these, all of these places. Uh, but he probably did it a little faster. He probably did it with uh, kind of the American joie de vivre of, you know, like a do-it-yourself mentality of not quite a rags to riches story, but very well could have been, you know, and almost became a quintessential character that you could see Mark Twain writing about. I say in the book into the uh, legacy portion that he is a wild and vibrant patch of the American crazy quilts, you know, like silver and gold and stained with whiskey. You know, like he seems to have a lot of the aspects of the uh, the quintessential American in him. Great. I mean, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of legacy was his wife, who seems to be a really important activist after he passes away, a philanthropist and a feminist, and certainly before her time, I would have thought. Would you agree? Or I mean, how do you see Phoebe's legacy? She has a spectacular story. Uh, 
when she and little William Randolph Hearst are touring Germany, like, you know, she looks in on the school systems, on the university, and she thinks, okay, this is the way to do it. And she's one of the people that really spearheads the kindergarten movement uh, in the United States. She establishes many kindergartens throughout San Francisco. Uh, her philanthropy is, is amazing. She actually helps uh, Martha's Vineyard, you know, and uh, George Washington was her favorite president, you know, and she becomes the first regent at UC Berkeley, first female regent at UC Berkeley. And does everything she can to pave the way for women's rights and particularly education rights. She's a little bit ahead of her time, just as George in his politics was a little bit behind his time. Later on, she was always a little bit horrified about uh, what her son was doing. At the same time, she was extraordinarily loving and there must've been some pride as well. Now uh, she could keep William Randolph her Hearst in check a little bit. Uh, George had never want anything built on his beloved Camp Hill in San Simeon, where uh, he would camp, or where William Randolph Hearst and George Hearst would camp. Once Phoebe passed, William Randolph Hearst said, okay, now's the time. And that's when he started construction on what became known as Hearst Castle. Uh, so she was able to put him in check just a little bit. And when William Randolph first wanted to uh, get married early on, none of his potential wives were good enough for Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe believed that her son should be marrying English royalty. <laughs> she had a little bit of that, uh, that part of her personality as well. Remarkable story, Matt. I definitely have a new impression of well, a, a brand new impression because I didn't really have much of an impression of George Hurst outside of that of his son. And I think what we get from this book is a multifaceted, multi-perspective because it's not just the family history that we've been looking at. It's it's really uh, his business partners, his friends, and also the politicians that he, he, he did battle with in Washington. It's a really great book and I think does a, a great service for the Gilded Age and Progressive Era to have it. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.